Good morning. Um, it's good to be back with you again. And uh, I'll start off kind of uh, continuing our progress around uh, General Assembly and just kind of giving you again some uh, thoughts on different things. Uh, sometimes those things are a little bit more challenging, right? Um, and I sent out this week um, a statement that we passed at the General Assembly about uh, the newsletter. Uh, and it had me thinking, I was thinking about it this week, um, a verse in James, James 1.17, he says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And I love the way that James ties faith and practice, especially with care for the most vulnerable among us, right? Um, and that's what uh, this update was about, is about protecting life. Um, and it's a challenging subject. And I want to say about that, um, it's a subject that's personal to all of us, uh, but this is also a safe space, right? It's a place to be in process, to say, I don't know, I'm telling you, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. Um, but when we think about what we have done and uh, what the Bible calls us to do, we want to say we want to be advocates for everyone, even those who don't have a voice, right? And that's going to mean different things at different times. And if you've got questions about that, uh, we'd love to have a conversation about it. Um, you can read more about the statement in um, the newsletter. If you don't get the newsletter, let me know. Um, but that's just, a, that's just a bit of an update. Um, so uh, with that, again, if you've got questions, feel free. See me after the, after the service. Uh, send me an email. Talk to uh, anybody else here. We'd love to chat with you about it. Um, but let's uh, shift our eyes back to Thessalonians here for a minute and let's pray. Father, our hearts are many places. Would these brief moments be a time where we can focus in one place? Would you lift our hearts up before your throne? Would you penetrate our hearts with your word this, this morning? And Father, would we receive it with humility because it is able to save our souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, not this, this last previous week, but the week before that, um, we were on vacation. My company has a, uh, two annual shutdowns. So the whole, all 12,000 people stop working for two weeks a year. You can get an exception, you know, if you need to. But um, it's nice because you don't come back to like, you know, 1,700 emails in your inbox because everybody's not working at the same time. It's also sometimes inconvenient because those two weeks are like the busiest travel weeks of the year, right? So it's like you don't have a lot of flexibility. Um, but we went to Brookville Lake. Um, you may have been there, I don't know. If you don't know where Brookville Lake is, it's out towards Cincinnati, um, kind of in between Cincinnati and Dayton. You could also go out um, to Richmond and go south, maybe 30, 45 minutes. Good lake, a lot of fishing, and it was really hot. 
it's really, really hot. <laughs> but um, on the way, um, you know, I pulled up Waze, and Waze doesn't always take you like the most uh, populous routes. Like sometimes, you know, it takes you through neighborhoods, like it takes you the shortest amount of time. And so we weren't taking like super back roads, but we definitely took some roads that were less traveled. Um, and so we passed a number of churches, um, little churches along the way. And as April and I were talking about it, it was interesting, every one of those churches that we passed had a cemetery. And you see some of that like this around the city, right? That used to be the total norm, right? Almost all cemeteries were with churches. It used to be, even if you listen to the old spirituals, right? My body will rest in the old churchyard. That's a line from one of the old spirituals. And so um, it had me thinking this week about how we compartmentalize our lives in different ways, right? Um, we take our young children and we put them in schools where we're somewhere else. We take our sick and we put them in hospitals, right? And then they're not with us. We take our aged people and we put them in assisted living facilities, right? And we take those who die and we put them in centralized uh, areas, right? And I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Um, so don't hear that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But one of the effects that that has had on my life is I think about all of those things less in my daily life. I think less about my kids being in school because they're out of sight, right? When, my, you know, when Paul was writing, all of this stuff was happening all around him, right? Everything was more integrated. And so it just had me thinking about um, how compartmentalized things are. And, and Paul is writing here um, to the Thessalonians, and he's talking about how to integrate hard things into their life, especially the idea in light of the idea that Christ is coming again. How do we live in light of that? How do we live an integrated life, right? A life that's not compartmentalized. How do we act the way we're supposed to act? So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And he's going to give us a couple of perspectives. Um, the first perspective is uh, that of those who don't have faith in Jesus. So he's going to start off the paragraph saying, this is what characterizes people who do not have faith in Jesus in verses 2 and 3. Um, and specifically about how they think about the, the coming of Jesus again and what's happening um, in the meantime. And then he's going to talk about how believers are to be characterized during that same period of time in verses 4 to 10. Uh, and then we'll conclude with a word of encouragement. So let's look at that together. Um, as we, just by way of context and reminding you, um, Paul starts off in, in 5.1. He says, Now concerning the times and seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. Um, so Paul, in this section, right, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, is uh, starting to answer uh, some of the Thessalonians' questions. The word now concerning, so those two words, um, are a, it's, it's Paul's way of saying in response to your question. And we know that from 1 Corinthians. Remember, Corinthians was written a few years after Thessalonians. 
And in 1 Corinthians, at several points during the letter, he says, now concerning about this, especially in chapter 7, he says, now concerning about what you wrote to me in your letter. So we know that this is Paul's way of answering questions. And we kind of said last week, we don't know exactly what the question was in, in 4, 13 to 18, but we think it was about um, what will the experience of those who have died before us be like when Jesus returns and will they miss out on some kind of blessing? And this week, uh, we think the question is, is quite related is, when is all that gonna happen? And he says, you know, you know uh, that you've already, I've already taught you about this. And so what has Paul uh, told them? So that's where we're going to go. And we're going to start with uh, verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Um, some of you in here have given birth. Some of you have been present while other people have given birth. Um, I was present at both of ours. Um, wow, it's an intense experience. Um, not something you will ever forget. I, maybe you will. I don't know, I'm not old enough to say never, right? You know, who knows? You know, talk to me in 40 years and see if I still remember. Um, but man, it's intense. And Paul here describes that intensity in that situation, uh, and he's highlighting the suddenness of it. And I was trying to think back in, in our own birth stories, where were we in the times of the day and what was my wife doing when we decided to go to the hospital? right? And it was different. It was different with each child, right? One was kind of in the middle of the night. Um, with our first, she worked up until like a couple of days before she gave birth. But with our second, she had a lot more trouble. And I think that's kind of Paul's point here is you can't predict it, right? Um, you don't know if it's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to go into labor when you're eating or when you're sleeping or when you're walking or when you're driving. One of our friends, her water broke during Sunday school, right? Like, you don't know. You don't know when it's going to happen. And that's the whole point. Um, he says it will come like a thief in the night, right? That while things are, while you're going on about your life, while you're doing normal things from the perspective of those who don't have faith in Jesus, while you're doing your normal things, that's when it's going to happen. Okay? Everybody with me on that? The suddenness? That's why it comes like a thief, right? That's the perspective of it because you're not expecting it. Right? You're just going about your life, and it's not something that you're looking forward to. We're going to see this come back in contrast to the way um, Christians are supposed to be thinking about it. Okay? But that's why it comes like a thief. What is the believer's response? And Paul, you know, he, he doesn't spend very much time on the perspective of unbelievers, but in... in 
he has this little reference. So where Rome is at right now, right? The Roman Empire, which is Thessalonica is inside the Roman Empire, right? Um, they are about, call it 70 years into the best 200 years of their existence. It's called the, the Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace. Uh, and so when the Thessalonians, uh, when Paul's writing to them, right, they are experiencing the best peace, the most security they've ever had in their lives, in their generations, not unlike us, right, in many ways. And Paul's saying that's, for you guys, that's a, that's a false sense of security because there's a deeper reality, even though it looks this way on the surface, there's a deeper reality that's going on there, and that reality is determined by Jesus, and one day, just like we talked about last week, God's going to say, it's time. And that will be the last day. We, as believers, understand that. And so he comes through and he starts shifting his focus to where he, what, you know, kind of really getting to the Thessalonians question. Uh, look down at verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers that the day, uh, for the day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Paul starts off by saying, uh, he's gonna go somewhere, verse six is kind of where he's going with it, but he doesn't start off with verse six right away, he starts off with the reminder of who you are in Jesus. Right? Colossians 1 says, He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. There is something that is fundamentally different about you because of faith in Jesus that is supposed to have some kind of effect about how you think and live your life until He returns again. There's something that's supposed to be different. You're not supposed to be just going around saying peace and security. Right? Something's supposed to be different. But that difference is not something that you're just supposed to do. It's because of who you are in Jesus. Um, you've heard this probably many times before, right? We call this the indicative imperative, right? Paul says, who you are informs what you do. So um, he starts off with uh, the who you are piece of it. Right? And he says, you are not of the darkness. You're not only, well, let's even go back. You're not only in darkness, you're not of darkness, right? The fundamental reality for you as a believer in Christ has changed. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Look down then, he gets to his point in verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The so then there kind of gets to where he's going. So, instead of saying there's peace and security, instead of just kind of going about life uh, in a kind of our own compartmentalized ways, instead of being in the easiness, right, the relative easiness that we have in modern life, we should be awake 
and we should be sober, which kind of means self-controlled in this context. That's what Paul's getting at. Um, sometimes it's a little confusing because Paul switches metaphors really easily, right? We just talked about sleep as a metaphor for death, and here he's using it as a metaphor for awareness, right? He's saying, you know the truth. You've seen the truth. God has shown the truth in your hearts. That truth should be everywhere. It's kind of the words that we would use it if you wanted to use kind of um, theological language to it. We talk about it as a Christian worldview. Adopting and processing everything in light of what God's word says is true about the world, is true about us, is true about himself. That's what Paul's saying. Be aware, be self-controlled. He's going to tell us how to do that then in verses 7 and 8. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, there's even just that reminder right there, even of the indicative, because of who you are, right? Let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. How many times have you heard sermons about the armor of God? Probably a lot, maybe. I don't know, maybe, maybe a few. Um, this passage was a great area of learning for me. I've learned, learned a lot about this passage over the years. Um, and I would say that when I first read it, I really definitely misunderstood it. So let me take you on a little journey here about what Paul is saying. It's not a long journey, it's just a short journey. Um, I, I grew up believing that Paul invented the language about the armor of God in the New Testament. Um, uh, a lot of times it was taught to me like kind of, you know, in relation to a Roman, like Roman centurion's armor, right? We compare the different pieces, etc. There certainly is something to be said about that because we use contextual clues in the culture around us to understand what the communication is about. But Paul speaks four times about the arm, you know, the armor of God um, in the New Testament. And he never speaks about it exactly the same way. So that should tell us a little bit that we don't want to press the metaphor too far, okay? But it actually comes from the book of Isaiah, um, which was surprising to me, that it's actually from the Old Testament. Um, it shouldn't be surprising because Paul draws so much stuff from the Old Testament. Um, there's a couple of different places in Isaiah, but the place I'm going to read from is Isaiah 59. Um, and Isaiah 59 is really about the Messiah. And in the passage, Isaiah is lamenting the lack of justice and righteousness on earth. Right? And uh, towards the end, I'll start reading in uh, kind of in the middle of verse 15. Uh, Isaiah writes, the Lord saw this, this lack of justice, this lack of righteousness. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate 
and a helmet of salvation was on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And then later on, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. The armor of God, as we've talked about it, the most famous passage, of course, is Ephesians chapter 6. Um, it's nothing other than you already have. I don't know any other way to say that, right? I used to think, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I am lacking, right? And that's why I'm susceptible to sin, or that's why I'm susceptible to attacks. And that's not it at all. Look at what Paul says here. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And I'm sorry, this is a little bit of English for Sunday morning. Having put on. Is that present tense? Is that future tense? It's past tense. You have put something on already. What have you put on as a Christian? You've put on Jesus. The armor of God, whether it's Ephesians 6 or Romans 13 or here, and the fourth place is escaping me right now, um, whichever place it is, the armor of God is putting on Jesus. It's nothing different than that. It's doing the same thing. You know, if we talk time and time again about how Paul has said to the Thessalonians, just as you have been doing, keep doing that. He's going to say it again in a couple of verses. It's the same thing he said in Colossians, right? Just as you receive Christ as Lord, keep doing that. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, keep putting on the things that are true about you because they're already true about you, right? You're just living out of your identity. There's nothing new that he's communicating here in the sense that he's like saying, you guys lack something. It's just about appropriating what's already true about them in Jesus. In fact, he uses the faith, hope, and love. And you guys probably don't remember this, but that's how he started his letter. He says, I thank God for you. In chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God for you, remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope, right? One of the few places, again, he mentions that in his letters. And we talked about how that is... Uh, the evidence of Jesus in your life, right? Your work of faith in terms of your relationship with God, your labor of love amongst other people, and then that steadfastness of hope, which is that long obedience toward God in both of those things in the same direction that's oriented towards his coming, towards understanding uh, how to live until he returns again. And he's saying here, do that same thing. Continue in faith and love and hope. You started in Christ. You saw your need. You confessed your sins. You said, I am not adequate. I need, uh, the only way that I can be saved is through faith in Jesus. And I see uh, the faith that is poured out on the cross because of what Jesus did for me. I see the love of God the Father that has been given to me by putting his spirit in us, by sending his own son down to die on the cross in our place. I know the hope that I have, which is sure, which protects me because it is finished. It is done, right? It's not 
oh man, I really hope that it stops raining at 11 or 12 or whenever I get out of here, right? No, the hope that we have is an anchor of the soul, right? That's what Hebrews 6 says. It's an anchor of the soul, right? It's what keeps us there when things are going crazy in the boat. Those things that we're putting on, we're just putting on more of Jesus. We're just using the things that we already know, the things that are already true, and saying, God, if you are for me, who is against me? If you are really who you say you are, then what can separate me from your love? If you are powerful to do what you have promised, then will it not come to pass? Of course it will. That's what we're doing. And that's, this is the dialogue. When we talk about um, even phrases like preaching the gospel to yourself, that's what we're doing. We're not getting saved over and over and over again. We're just reaffirming what we know to be true. And that's what Paul says to do here. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, which he substitute for righteousness from Isaiah 19, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And he just adds hope in there, right, compared to what Isaiah did. Paul's just saying Isaiah was looking forward to what the work of the Messiah was doing. We are looking backward with confidence in what he has already done. And that's why it gives us strength. Paul finishes up then with this word of encouragement. Uh, in verse 10, it says, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He goes back to the sleep. This kind of is wrapping up um, this whole section of chapter 4 and chapter 5. He kind of pulls back in the sleep metaphor from chapter 4, right, where it's sleep. He's talking about here, again, whether we're awake, meaning alive, or whether we're asleep, meaning we're dead in Jesus from, from chapter 4. He's wrapping the whole thing up together. We, uh, we might live with him. And I, I was thinking about that, and I was even thinking about um, the promise in Matthew 28, right? Behold, I am with you always. And to kind of tie it back into what I was saying uh, at the beginning about compartmentalizing, I realized that I compartmentalized that promise from Jesus. And for a long time, I was thinking, I am with you always meant Jesus is with me everywhere I go on earth, which is true. But I am with you always in this context is I'm not just with you here on earth, but I'm also with you in death. I'm also with you wherever you go. There is no place, there is no place in time or in space where I can flee from his presence. If I go to the depths, he is there. If I ascend to the heavens, he is there. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. What a precious promise. 
So he says that we might live with him wherever we are. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Um, I was listening to a podcast that was featuring Tim Keller, and he was talking about this, this process, and they said, Tim, when so many other people have fallen away, so many people have been um, caught up in sin, you have a very high profile as a pastor, right? How, you know, what's your secret? And he said, there's no secret. But something that has been a priority for him, uh, and the one verse he quoted in that answer was Hebrews 3.13, which says, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And that's what Paul's saying here. We need each other to build ourselves up in Jesus each day so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Because the way the world looks around us, it looks like peace and security. It looks like things are going well. A lot of times in my life, it feels like things are going well. And all of that yet pales in comparison, right, to the glory that is to be revealed when he comes again. And so let's encourage one another and build one another up, even as we have been doing here at Fountain Square. To those outside of Fountain Square, let's continue to do that more and more until he comes again on the clouds and all eyes see him, that we might be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you, would you teach us Would you teach us more about who we are? By your Spirit, would you continue to reveal those places in our hearts where we have not yet brought faith in the power of the gospel in line with who you have called us to be? You have, you have snatched us out of death. You have made us alive in your Son. Would you breathe life into the deepest recesses of our minds and our hearts and our souls? Would you make us more after the image of Jesus each and every day? Would you use us to build one another up and encourage one another even more in that? As we see the day of your coming approaching, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.